Welcome to the Hillside Community Church Podcast. Wherever you're at in your faith, we hope this episode encourages you. If you enjoy the listen, let your friends know, and we'll catch you next time. Today is the sort of the last, just a two-part series uh, we started last week called The Singer and the Sage. Sort of grew out of uh, our little Christmas breakfast we have and some life lessons that we shared. Uh, We looked last week at Psalm 11 and what happens when your foundations fall apart. We learned that our hearts are fickle and we can be fearful. And when that happens, we'll just grab onto anything. We'll put our weight onto anything. Um, We learned as a result of time and life, some of the things we put our weight on aren't capable of holding us. And so uh, those foundations get demolished. And only God, who is sovereign and in control and righteous, um, is adequate to put all our hopes and dreams in and our trust. Today we look at another life lesson. Uh, What happens when our plans are altered? And we're going to look at Proverbs 16 for that. And both of these, your foundations fall apart or your plans get altered. These are devastating things when they happen. In the moment, these things are, they're just crushing. And so um, they challenge our faith at the deepest level. I think both these things that we're looking at sort of require a certain quality of soul to manage, but they also reveal a certain quality of soul when they happen. And last week we learned sometimes God will test that. And so uh, at the end of the day, in both of these, trust plays a very, very significant part of our relationship with God. So let's talk today about plans. We're going to look at a proverb, and I want to show you something real quick about this truth. Proverbs really is divided up into three parts. And each part's got its own little divisions. But these are the three main sections. The first part is really just discourses on wisdom, one through nine. And then you get Solomon's, uh, the chapters mostly from Solomon until you get to the very end. Um, There's kind of two sections of of his teachings. And this middle section uh, can be divided up in 10 to 15 and then 16 to 22. And right in the middle, the end of 15 and 16, sort of there's this pillar that uh, scholars have noticed. It's such a central truth, what's taught right here in the center, that it reaches back this way and this way. So it becomes sort of that kind of truth that you've got to have operating in your life, something you've got a hold of in order to deal with everything else. This is one of those uh, central truths. Um, and it, of course, has to do with uh, plans and how these all work. So we got the, our whole proverb here that we're looking at, but the beginning and the end of this proverb, if you look at the whole thing, chap- verse 1 and verse 9 sort of form a little, uh, you know, like an inclusio, like an envelope. This, there's a beginning and an end, and they're just, they model, they sort of sound alike, and Um, sort of bracket the truths that go on in the text. And so if we put them side by side together, verse 1 and verse 9, the plans of the heart belong to man, 
but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Just a couple observations about these things that you kind of got to grasp before you can understand what's in between and in the middle. So plans uh, have to do with, literally the word means to set in order, uh, to, to sort of arrange. And that's kind of what we do when we make our plans. We just sort of arrange our lives. And we all have this picture and we sort of arrange the steps. And, um, and then you get, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord, which means this is sort of Proverbs way of saying the last word is God's. You, you, you sort of arrange these things, but the last word is God's. And then you have the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. This is actually singular. The idea that every step you take is superintended by God. You don't take a step that God is not actively involved in. This is incredible. So you learn here sort of what man's doing and what God's doing. Uh, Derek Kidner titles this chapter, Man Proposes, God Disposes. Um, So they work together. And they're sort of two truths that are side by side with one another. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility. They work together. That's the picture in the Bible. The picture in the Bible is that these two operate in conjunction with one another. Uh, Very difficult to grasp. Not easy to understand how they work together. But on the one hand, uh, I'm responsible for my actions and the decisions that I make. On the other hand, God uses them to accomplish his ultimate purposes. Uh, This is a profound picture of God. He has sort of arranged reality such that he oversees everything, but we're responsible for what we do. Uh, And we're going to see, really, you're going to see how incredibly comforting these two are and how difficult it would be to live if only one of them were so. If, 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 if God was sovereign and everything was sort of determined already, what would life be like? Or the opposite, let's say we were completely free, we could do whatever we want to do, and we determine the end, sort of, you know, like history's open. What would that be like? Um, either or is, is not very... Uh, well, we could say practical, but it's also a little overwhelming. Let me, let me show you what I mean. Uh, so let's say God determines everything. And uh, none of our decisions matter. In the end, God's going to do what he wants. If you've ever been frustrated with God, you say, oh, you're going to do what you want anyway, so what does it matter? This, is, this would, be, it would be very, very difficult to live this way. And if you really, really believed that, It'd be very difficult to get up in the morning. You would, you'd throw your arms up all day long, just sort of indifferent. Why does it matter? Who cares? It'd be almost meaning, meaningless living. 
uh, you're, because you're so minimized to the point that what you do and say is insignificant. Uh, that, would be, that would be very boring. That would be a boring life. Uh, on the other hand, if, if you're totally free and God has nothing to do with the outcomes, you're totally free. Uh, what would life be like there if it was all depending, all dependent on you? Well, be honest, it'd still be hard to get out of bed because I'd be really afraid that I'm going to make a bad decision. You're going to be panicked over everything. On the one hand, you'd either be indifferent to it all, who cares? On the other hand, you'd be totally panicked that everything depends on you. Um, now, that, that's too much pressure. That'll make you fearful and, and paralyzed. You know, it sounds great. I'm free. We love saying I'm free. I can do what I want. I can make my own way. We love saying that. You remember, uh, I'm going to show you uh, just a quick movie clip of a film that one of those other movies uh, that are very critical in understanding biblical truth. Um, it's Back to the Future, uh, part 71. Back to the Future, part 71, I think it is. It's actually part four. Uh, so watch this little scene. I, well, you'll recognize it probably. Dr. Brown, I brought this note back from the future and now it's a race. Of course it's a race. But what does that mean? It means your future hasn't been written yet. No one's has. Your future is whatever you make it. So make it a good one. Both of you. The great Doc Brown. Uh, your future is whatever you make it. It's whatever you want it to be. That's why the page is blank. That page is blank and you're responsible for filling it out. Now that sounds really great. The music behind it is like, Oh, yes. That's a horrible reality. A horrible reality. And, and our proverb gives us some reasons why that would be a horrible reality. Everything dependent on us. And, and it starts in verse 2. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes. But the Lord weighs the spirit. And this is... Uh, uh, this is basically a way of saying we're very complicated. And we have lots of ideas and opinions. And that's what this, he weighs the spirit. That's our spirit. That's what's sort of determining these things. And that has to basically saying your dispositions, your moods, your opinions, your ideas, your plans, all the things that go into that um, Very often we think we know exactly what we're doing. Our motives are perfect. And of course, we've all lived long enough to know that that is absolutely not true. So part of the problem with you being responsible to fill that page out is that you're not personally capable of doing it. That's a, that's a harsh reality. Uh, you do realize that you have been a part, a significant part of every bad decision you've ever made. 
Do you know that? You were right there. And even though you thought it was great, it might have been, you're the problem. Or maybe you're not the problem. Maybe that's not the thing that's going to thwart your plan. Um, if you look at this text here, the, the verse 4, the Lord has made everything for its purpose. That, that's a powerful statement as creator overseeing reality. Even the wicked, even evil, God uses to accomplish his ultimate plans. But there are, it, it, may, not be, uh, it may not be you that ruins your perfect plan. It might be others. There are other perpetrators. It could be some devastating event or it can be someone who's in the way. Somebody does something horrible to us. All of us have lived these experiences. And so uh, it knocks us off course and we're forced to change direction. And this text is saying there are no loose ends. God is running the universe. He's not the author of evil, but he uses it. This is a powerful, nothing thwarts his plans. The things that thwart your plans don't thwart his plans. Now, I was the other night, um, or actually it was last night, we did a wedding, Gail and I, in Granbury for a family that goes to Hillside. And um, we were catching up. We haven't had a time to sit down and, and, and have conversations, so we're catching each other up on, on each other's lives and, and telling stories and sort of where things are. And, and, and after they were telling us these stories, mind-blowing kinds of stories, uh, he said at the end, you know, as if he, he felt like he probably needed to say it, and that was, it wasn't what we planned. It wasn't the plan is exactly how he said it. And there was, there was a part of him that felt like, you know, I just want you to know that that's not how I designed it. Um, of course, of course not. Um, and haven't we all experienced that? Haven't you all? We've all experienced, in fact, the majority of our lives are, nah, it didn't go the way I planned it. And how many times have you been surprised? Like a good surprise. You're like, I am so glad it didn't work out the way I planned. Right? You look back on your life that way. I mean, I almost, man, if you could have seen what I, the effort I put into trying to marry the girl that I knew in high school, you, you, you'd be overwhelmed. You'd laugh at me. Uh, I chose a college for that. I, you know, just knew that this was the thing that I had to do and made some just, just did dumb stuff. And then I'm, because I went to the first college I chose was just not the right place. It was a little school in Atlanta. Then God somehow got me to Liberty. It's a, an amazing story. And that's where I met Gail. I mean, it's like, if it all worked out the way I initially thought it was going to work out, who knows what kind of mess I'd be in. Uh, if we had... Uh, when I came to DTS in 87, when I came here to go to school, my plan was to go back to Miami and work in the church that I, you know, came to Christ in. And that didn't work out, and that, that's all I knew. I couldn't see 
anything else in front of me. That was the plan. And then God, of course, changed it, surprised me in lots of ways. Um, you know, we have, when we had three children, I remember, Gail, I remember us talking about a fourth one, sort of like you talk about winning the lottery. It's a great idea, but you're never going to win. And then all of a sudden, surprise. Mike was our biggest surprise, the fourth one. And um, I remember just being overwhelmed by it. Gail didn't go to the doctor for six months because we lived in denial. That's not a baby in there, honey. Watch your diet, babe. Watch your diet. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's, how, that's how evil it felt. Um, but it turns out, Mike's my favorite. <laughs> you say, I can't believe you just said that. You have four boys. They know. It's not a surprise. <laughs> hey, you know, uh, even legacy. Do you know, we, if, all the, if the plan would have worked out the way we wanted it to, we'd have, we'd have already started building in August. But I can't tell you how many little things God has shown us. That's not when I wanted this building to be built. And I know you worked, you dotted every I, you crossed every T. But there's a lot of factors involved. Now, I'm not going to get into them with you right now. But God's timing is far better than mine. Or yours, or our leaders, or anyone. And so... uh, you know, you have these issues and problems. So when you say, listen, I'm free to do what I want. I can write anything on the page that I want. Really, you're just vulnerable. You're vulnerable to your own mistakes and you're vulnerable to the mistakes of others. And there's just no way to imagine that you could accomplish all of that. So the Bible tells you, hey, you don't have to panic on either side of this. You don't have to be paralyzed and you don't have to be passive. You don't have to... Stay in bed all day, overwhelmed or, or indifferent. The Bible sort of puts these two things together. Um, I'm free. I am responsible. I'm accountable. That gives me every single reason to get out of bed and make decisions. To live my life. But it also means that at the end of the day, God is in control and he will work it all out. So on the one hand, I need to get busy. On the other hand, I can relax. Both of those truths operate together. Um, You know, theologically speaking, putting these two ideas together is called compatibilism. And it's just saying the two truths are compatible. Somehow the way God's sovereignty is defined in the Bible, we tend to make it fatalistic. God has defined sovereignty in such a way that he can hold you accountable for your decisions. You're free to make them. On the other hand, he oversees it all and determines the end. I don't know how those two work together. It's crazy to think about how they work together, but his sovereignty can encompass your decision-making. Don't know how that works, but they work together. So you say, well, how do you live with this reality if these things are true? Uh, How do you live with it? 
Well, that's really where uh, verse 3 comes in. Let's see if we can find this right here. This is, this is a really critical verse in here. This sort of starts us on our way on what to do about this. Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. Uh, one of the commentators I read, Van Leeuwen, I think makes a really good observation that when you think about the fact that God is sovereign, but we have our responsible part in the planning, you'd think he'd be saying, commit your plans to God and your work will be established. Just the opposite. But actually it says, commit your work to God and God will establish your plans. Um, which is a, it's a, it's a powerful point. Because it sees me as being active. I do have work to produce. In terms of how it's all going to come together, it's not, it's not completely on me. But I do have work to do. And in fact, I need to act. I need to act boldly. Whatever, these tru- whatever the mystery of these two tr- truths operating together, I do have work to do. Uh, the word commit is very interesting. Because we've talked about it before in wisdom literature, that word, it literally means to roll. It means to just literally like roll up like a heavy rock onto something. It's the idea in like Psalms, especially in Proverbs, of rolling all the weight of the whole thing on, onto God. That, that's really what the word means. That's, that's how I execute anything in my life. That's how I'm supposed to work out these realities. And the, all of these texts, this text, and the reason, one of the reasons I put this whole thing up there is I wanted you to see the actions of man in this text. Uh, you know, where he says, uh, you know, work, it's the word we're looking at right now, but he also says, turn away. There's a responsibility to turn away from evil. There's also these steps or step, every step that I take. So, I mean, I, I, I'm active in this, uh, in this whole reality. And that's, what it, that's, that's the idea. Um, Dallas Willard has a line I use a lot in my life. He says, do your best, but don't trust it. That's essentially what this is saying. You do your best. You make the best decisions that you can make. And many times, you're forced to make a decision with the best information you have. You never trust it. You trust him. And then your plans will be sort of worked out. And this just means, you know, Lord, whatever comes my way, whatever I have to deal with in the process... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to handle it the way you would want me to because I'm trusting you in this process. I'm trusting you. I'll obey you no matter what comes my way. And I'll accept whatever comes my way. That's how you start the planning process. That's how you start any plans. And then your plans will be established. Confident then this is a, just a great truth that however it works out, if I'm doing my best to follow God in the process, even if I make a misstep, I know that he's ultimately going to work out 
the end the way he wants it to. And every step I take, will be, he will be sort of a part of that process. This is an incredible truth. And this, this makes you say to yourself, or at least ask the question I think is worthy of asking is, do you have any plans? Like, what are your plans? Do you have any bold spiritual plans? When you consider that I'm going to be, uh, whatever, whatever I'm doing, God's using to sort of bring about what he wants, whatever that is, even though I don't necessarily know what it is, I know that there's a sense in which my whole life, everything I do is uh, participating with him, advancing ultimately his designs, and I get to be a part of that. Bruce Waltke put it like this. It's one of the commentators. He said, what you think in your inner being will become overt historical event. Something that you plan in your mind, outwardly manifests itself in something that happens, and the idea that that might endure into eternity is a profound thought. It makes you ask the question, you know, are my plans worthy? Or are they just like everybody else's plans in the world? Just get through a day so you can watch Netflix. Just get through a day so that you can... You know, put the kids to bed and finally relax. And then you can spread that out to, I just got to make sure I keep life as simple and basic as I possibly can so that one day I can retire and not have to worry about anything. I can finally tell my boss to go have a great weekend. <laughs> you just, you just, and your, and, and your plans look just like everybody else's plans. Do you have anything greater knowing that you get to participate with God in ultimate things? Listen, there's no more meaningful way to live. There's no more meaningful way to live than to know that I get to be a part of something God is ultimately doing. And both are working together. That Not all the burden is on me, but I get to participate. Uh, that's a powerful truth. Um, you know, probably the best illustration of this, and, 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 you, and you have to use it, even though it's so familiar. So let's try to think about it maybe just a little differently this morning. It's, it's just the story of Joseph. Um, Joseph's this young boy, you know, the favorite son, Number 12. He's the youngest boy. And the father, Jacob, loves him more than he really loves the other brothers. There's something about him. And of course, that creates a really bad family system. Because Joseph is in the, in the process of becoming somebody nobody wants to be around, just a spoiled brat. Nobody wants to be his friend. Certainly nobody would want to marry that guy. And who would want him to be your boss? And then his other brothers, the other 11, are just, they're just miserable about the whole thing. It's just the family dynamic that's incredibly unhealthy. And the brothers get to the point where they're so fed up with it. Imagine you're so fed up with it that you, you enact a plan to get that kid out of the family. Meanwhile, God is working through and with this family. This is what God has to work with in order 
for the children of Israel, the promise of this nation to come to pass. This is what God's dealing with. And so at the very end of Joseph's life, which we'll piece together real quickly, but at the very end of it all, the journey he goes on from that moment, because they're going to throw him in a pit, probably intending to kill him, but a group of people come by, some gypsies, who are open to buying him, so they sell him. They just sold their brother. He goes from pit to being sold, and then, you know, eventually somebody else buys him, and he ends up in Potiphar's house, this sort of a key figure. And Potiphar's wife is making passes at him. This is all happening, by the way, over a 15-year period. Poor Joseph's in terrible predicament, but he makes a good decision there, and he runs, but he still gets accused of it. And because he gets accused of doing something he didn't didn't do, he, he ends up in prison. Now, I don't know about you, but at this point, I'm done. I, I don't even want, I'm done by this point. I mean, I think the pit would have been enough for me to be done. But by the time I get here and I realize everything in the whole world is against me, I can't win anywhere. And my brothers are at the bottom of it. And then somehow, thrown into prison for, for years, because of his character and because of the kind because of the character that's growing in him meets the right people a couple of conversations and then when there's an issue in the nation of Egypt when there's an issue there somebody thinks well I think that guy in that prison cell may have the answer to this that connection is made and pretty soon Joseph becomes He goes from, you know, you've heard it before, pit to pinnacle. He becomes the second person in Egypt. And that's critical to God's overall plan for the nation. The family saved and the whole nation is from from starvation because of Joseph's leadership in Egypt. I mean, it's just overwhelming. The story's overwhelming. You can reflect on it into eternity. And at the end of the story, remember when Jacob dies, when the father's gone, the brothers are the most afraid because they think Joseph has been harboring such bitterness that when dad dies, he's going to go ahead and just kill all 11 of us. And this is what he says to them. I know you guys meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. This is the two key lines. You meant it for evil and God meant it for good. These two are parallel. They operate at the same time. So let me tell you what they don't mean so that you can understand how God works in your life. Um, It doesn't mean this. Joseph could have said to them, you guys are just so rotten and so evil. 
and you did all this stuff and you threw God off a little bit and he had to come in at the end and save it. He just came in at the end and saved the day. That's not what he's saying. Because these are parallel, God had a part in every single piece of it along the way. It wasn't like, God will work it out later. That's not how God works in, a, in your life. Now, the other thing that could have been said is God had this perfect plan and you guys came along and wrecked it. And so now we're all stuck with plan B. And you might think you're in plan B of your life. There was no plan B. They worked together. God was a part of the whole thing. This is, this is an incredibly powerful truth. So powerful, Joseph is transformed by this truth to the point that when he looks back over all the horror that happened to him and he had an opportunity to take it out on the people that sort of thwarted the plan, he chose not to do it because he was so convinced that God was up to something even their evil intentions couldn't have imagined. That is a powerful truth. It's probably the most important piece that comes out of this whole thing. That's the reason this verse is given. I will do what God wants me to do even though I or someone else has thrown me so off the mark. That's what it means to commit your work to the Lord. I'm going to do what God wants me to do in spite of all these consequences, all these issues. I'm going to be who he's asking me to be. It's just overwhelming. God was transforming him and transporting him. This is a kind of, now this is a guy I want as my brother. Now this is the kind of guy I don't mind having as my boss. Now this is the kind of guy I don't mind being married to. This is the kind of guy you say, I want, I'd like him in my life somehow. Because God has transformed him and transported him all at the same time. And that's what God's doing all along. That's why this, that's why this, because God can accomplish his plan in you and still accomplish his plan for the whole thing. This is, it's just incredible. And if it's not true, you're miserable. Now, I just want to say, um, in light of that story, which I think provides a, a great backdrop to the next two of these, the next two points about what it means to uh, sort of commit your work to the Lord in spite of the circumstances, let him plan. Here's the first thing I want you to see, and this comes in verse 7. He says, when a man's ways please the Lord, Joseph, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Are you familiar with Psalm 23 where he says he's going to prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies? And you're like, what in the world does that mean? This whole kind of concept right here, is, it's, it's, a, it's a hyperbolic statement of essentially saying, I've got to do what God wants me to do in the midst of my life, but I'm going to have a lot of obstacles. And... There may be a people in my life uh, 
who are thwarting the plan. What it is, is it's an impossible situation, something you cannot control, that's keeping you from something you'd like to have. And it could be a number of different things, but in this particular case, it could be someone's in your world that's keeping what you'd like to have in your life out. Listen, let's think about it. It could be a jury. It could be your boss. It could be a family member like Joseph. It could be your kids. Something is in the way of you having the life you want, having the plan that you have mapped out in your mind. Very often, it's a person. And you think to yourself, I could run around and I could try to manipulate and I can be angry like Joseph could have been angry. You could have taken it out on those people. I've got to get you out of the way so that my plan can work. That's never God's way. God is basically saying, what I need you to do is trust me to change even the worst hard-hearted person in your life. I can, I can fix that problem if I want to. In other words, ultimately... They're not keeping you from what I want you to have. Do you understand that? That's such a powerful principle because all of us are limited by each other. And often it's very, very painful. Um, You know, I have a couple of people in my life, uh, Jeff and Carolyn, we get together pretty regularly. The deepest community I have in my life is with them. And we have fun together, but we, we spend a good deal of time Discussing very, very hard things about life, sharing our lives, details. And um, we, we all have impossible situations going on in our life. They're impossible. And because this thing or that person or this issue, it's just, it's constant. So what we, what we sort of committed to this year is we were sort of, teasing these things out in each other's lives is we've decided that going into this year, we're going to spend time praying every time we're together and we're going to be praying, God, you know what? There's an impossible situation, maybe an impossible person, and I don't know how to deal with it. All I can do is trust you to change their hearts. I'm not, it's out of my hands. I'm just trusting you in this impossible situation. And I can't tell you how many times I have fallen back on this reality when we get together. Sometimes, here's the thing, Sometimes it's observed that the problem is not out there, it's in here. Here recently they have pointed out what I thought was a problem out here that turned out to be a problem in here. And the problem was me. Ever been your own worst enemy? Sometimes the problem is someone else, and I, there's nothing I can do about it. I can't change their heart. I, don't know. I can either be manipulative or I can be controlling, and that's what we do sometimes. We try to figure out how to manage the whole thing to make it go the way we want because somebody's keeping it. From. Sometimes it's just circumstances, and I, and I forget that God is working in and through things to bring about things he wants that I can't see right now, and I just want to remember that in the, in the heat of it. So that's the first one. 
Let me handle your obstacles, God says. Because I could take even the most spiteful, hateful person in your life and change their heart if I want to. Just let me handle that. That's a powerful statement. But there's another thing about following God and doing what he wants and trusting him in his plan. Look at this verse here, the next verse, verse 8. Better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. Here's another thing about trusting God. i got to trust God. I'm going to commit. I'm going to roll this whole thing on him, which means he's going to have to deal with the impossible people in my life. Or me. And I'm also probably, potentially, going to have to live without something. When was the last time you said, you know, better is a little? That's not usually what we say. We all have big plans. We have big plans for more and better and farther. Anybody else want to move out of town? Anybody else want to move really far? That kind of thing? You just want to get away? We, that's, that's, that's how we think and plan. And so all our plans are just like those big things out there that just make our world better. And here's what he's saying. No, 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 no. Better is a little. If you're doing what I want you to do, if you're trusting me, See, what happens is, you know, kind of like with Joseph, as God's transforming your heart, he's turning you into someone new. And if you've committed everything to him, then, then your goals have changed. You define success differently. When you make your plans, you set them out there and you go, God, I, I'm open to what you're doing in me. And you might be doing enough in me like, who would you rather have deciding things or go to for advice? Young Joseph? Or old Joseph. Yeah, I want that guy in my life. I guarantee he has great advice. I'll bet his plans when he was 15 are far different than he's 30. That's because God's changed his life. So God's transforming you to the point where your goals are different. And if you end up having to do without some, this is contrary to sort of the whole prosperity idea. And, and by the way, I don't care what you believe intellectually. In your heart, you believe that if you love God and he loves you, you probably ought to get more stuff. Life ought to be better for you. Every single one of us believe that. And that's why we get mad at God when things don't go great because we think, as good a guy as I am, and look at this situation. We never think to ourselves, you know, it might be better to, to have little. Because you feel like you're not getting ahead. You know, you've got these plans and you want to get ahead. You want to make progress. And others are passing you by. They're not necessarily doing it the right way, but they're passing you by and it's frustrating. And you're doing without something. I don't know what you're doing without, but maybe use this phrase. I just wrote down three quick phrases on this. Maybe your space is small. I don't know, you just, for some reason, you just feel cramped in life. It may not be your house, it might be your house. Too small. Might be your world, it's just a little small. It's kind of like Joseph, he was thrown into a pit. A little small space. And then into a prison cell. And then accused 
He just, it just seems like his life was cramped the whole time. He never could get any headway. And God was trying to say to him all along, let me tell you, Joseph, this, this little pit is so far better than anything else as long as you're doing what I want you to do. As long as you're obeying me, you don't need more and more space. Or maybe you just have less stuff. You don't have everything you want. Or maybe your say is gone. You know, it's really frustrating when when you have something to say, but you don't get the opportunity to say it, or it's not your place to say it. Ever had that happen? And you just have to shut your mouth. That's hard. And how many times have we gotten in trouble? Because we said it. God's up to something and he's doing something. No matter what your circumstances are right now, the most important thing to do in your life is to roll it on him in totality and then ask him, Lord, what do you want me to accept about the situation that I'm in? It's the best thing you can do. Now, let me just wrap this up by giving you what I think is the central truth around all of this and the only way you're ever going to grab it, the only way it's going to become real to you in your heart the way it comes alive, the way the mystery unfolds at its most beautiful. Because what? Because we'll never figure it out. Look at this verse right here. This is Acts 2, 23. This is Peter preaching sermon after Jesus is risen from the dead. He says, this man, Jesus who was handed over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. It was all determined a long time ago. There's God's sovereignty. You executed by nailing him to the cross. There's the worst possible evil that could anyone could do. And in this particular text right here, you see these truths come together. And I'll tell you what we needed to know. We needed to know that God's not up there with just some mystical plan that we just have to just sort of fall in line with. No, God entered it. He entered the mystery by coming to the cross. The whole redemptive plan possible in the cross is God's sovereignty and our responsibility. God enters the mystery. He's, he's caught, he, he catches himself up in the whole thing that you and I are caught up in every day. Evil and injustice. And on top of that, you have this Jesus who the scriptures present as someone who volunteered. Wait a minute, I thought God was sovereign and I thought we did our thing. What was his role in this? He volunteered. So how in the world did he volunteer if God predetermined it and and we did what we did and we're involved too? How could all of us interact together? He prayed, your will, not mine. The scripture says he obeyed and went to the cross. 
So you have that dynamic working. You've got God's sovereign plan working. You've got evil at its worst. And in the cross, they all come together in a beautiful way where love and justice come together. And the mystery of all mysteries is if I don't, if I don't understand how they all play together, I at least know this. The cross is the place where this mystery, God subjected himself to that mystery and demonstrated that no matter what I understand fully at all about the spiritual life, I know this truth. He loves me. He loves me. I can't figure it all out. But because he subjected himself to this mystery... I can see it all come together in the cross. The cross is like, it, it's, how, it's how you view all of life. You view all of life through it. I'll tell you what one writer said, and I'll close with this. He says, we can live with irony and paradox because we have come to see that for the cross to make any sense at all, we simply must affirm that God was sovereign, that human beings we're rebellious and morally responsible that God's love and justice are displayed there and that Christ died voluntarily. And if we forsake any of these truths, the significance of the cross is completely destroyed. If you take, about, if you take away his willingness to obey, it's not going to work. If you take away the sovereign plan, the cross means nothing. If you take away the responsibility and the, and the role we played in it, it means nothing. They all have to play together. And together they communicate the single truth. That God absolutely is in charge. That he has entered the mystery with us. That he loves us to the nth degree. Would you bow your heads? Father, we can't comprehend all of this. We don't know how these all interplay in our worlds. We just know sometimes our world feels like it's upside down. It is nice to know that in the mystery that you subjected yourself to it. You put yourself right into the midst of it. Absorbed, took upon yourself the worst possible evil. And as a result of that, when it was dark and gloomy, This incredible truth emerges out of the mystery that you love us more than anything. That you, that's why we want to make plans that please you. That's why we want to trust you. That's why we want to participate with you in eternity. In Jesus' name. Amen.